0: The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. For three years, Myanmar's Rohingya minority has been steadily pushed out of the country and into refugee camps in neighboring Bangladesh. The conditions were already harsh before COVID-19 exploded across the world. And the latest blow came from a massive fire that destroyed three camps causing high casualties and once again sending the refugees looking for shelter. Joining the crisis next door to talk about the Rohingya's plight is Professor Azim Ibrahim, director of New Line's Institute for Strategy and Policy based in Washington, D.C. Professor Ibrahim is also author of the book The Rohingya's Inside Myanmar's Genocide. Professor Ibrahim, it's good to have you back on The Crisis Next Door.
1: Thanks so much for having me again, Jason.
0: Professor, we last talked in January of 2020, just before the pandemic swept across the globe. Three years into the crisis for the Rohingya, how would you describe their current status compared to a year ago?
1: Well, the current situation seems to be getting worse um, uh, on a regular kind of basis. Uh, You you mentioned the fire, and that's just not all that's uh, going on at the moment. You know, uh, the Rohingya are also being moved to this island by the government of Bangladesh called uh, Bashan Char. Now, we have to understand that the Rohingya occupy a refugee camp in Bangladesh in Cox Bazar after they were expelled, forcibly expelled from Myanmar and uh, the majority of them in 2017. So this is the largest refugee camp in the world. It uh, holds over one million people. Rohingya uh, civilians in this camp and the camp has been design- designed specifically by the government of Bangladesh to ensure that it is not a permanent feature so there's no permanent structures allowed in the camp there's no bricks and concrete everything is made of bamboo and tarpaulin and plastic and, uh, so because the government of Bangladesh is obviously very keen on returning these Rohingya refugees back to Myanmar uh, they don't want them to be a permanent fixture in, uh, in, in Bangladesh, and that's totally understandable. The, Ro- the Rohingya refugees are costing Bangladesh over $900 million a year. And for a country like Bangladesh, which is already one of the most densely populated countries in the world, with the landmass mass that's shrinking every year, Uh, because of climate change and rising sea levels you know this is a very difficult uh, undertaking for them yeah so they're very keen on returning the rohingya back to myanmar but unfortunately with the recent coup in myanmar any sort of discussions and negotiations that were going on with the civilian government uh, discussions that i am not privy to but they have obviously now come to a complete end because the civilian government has now been overthrown, uh, so the government of Bangladesh, I think, is now coming to the realization that the probability of the Rohingya going back is uh, is not very likely now. So they've come, they've come up with a new plan in terms of moving the Rohingya to this island, this remote island, uh, which essentially just you know emerged from the ocean. Uh, you know, about half a a century ago. It didn't actually exist before that, but they've reconfigured the island and redeveloped it to move the Rohingya there. Uh, So they're essentially very keen on, uh, you know, moving the Rohingya out of these camps, kind of dispersing them and uh, to try to relieve some of the pressure. Uh, So the situation for the Rohingya, you know, who are also known and described by the United Nations as the most persecuted minority in the world. They're also known as the forgotten people, uh, simply because they have no, no nationality, no citizenship, and no prospect of having any of those in the near future. Uh, so um, the, 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 their situation just seems to be getting worse on a regular basis.
0: How realistic is this island in the Bay of Bengal? You mentioned it just emerged from the sea. We know that the sea is rising around Bangladesh. I, how likely is it that it could sustain any sort of civilization for any length of time?
1: Well, the government of Bangladesh has spent a considerable amount of money to ensure that the island is safe, uh, to ensure that the island is um, uh, habitable. Uh, they've, they've, you know, built considerable structures. They've uh, contracted external companies to make sure they build seawalls to make uh, to ensure that the island does is not sink. Uh, you know, or 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 um, uh, as uh, affected by cyclones, which are obviously a common feature in that part of the world. But uh, the reality is, we just don't know because there's no independent verification. Uh, the United Nations, I believe, have not been allowed onto the island uh, to inspect it independently, and uh, journalists have not been permitted onto the island to inspect the conditions. And uh, many Rohingya families have been moved to this island called, the island is called Bashanchar. They've been moved to this island uh, and many of them say they've been moved forcibly against their will. Uh, So the difficulty is that they're splitting families up. Uh, Families are living in refugee camps. Some members of the families are moved to the island. Some others are not moved. So the idea of the island itself is not necessarily the problem the idea, uh, the the problem essentially is that those that are moved to the island don't have any mechanism by which to actually come back and forth to the other refugee camps to visit family members, etc. And the island itself is just not sustainable, uh, self-sustainable. You know, there's no farming land, there's no land to actually rear animals or anything of the sort. So you're literally just living off handouts in a very large permanent refugee camp so all of these things are being looked at I have been told by the Bangladeshi government um, uh, and I think these are the things that have to be uh, you know rectified uh, I don't think the idea of an island and having an island uh, is itself problematic I think they just have to ensure that nobody is forcibly moved there. the island is sustainable it is safe and uh, you know and it has a, a, a mechanism by which to actually have a li- livelihood.
0: How bad has COVID-19 impacted the Rohingya and are there government vaccination plans for the Rohingya in Bangladesh?
1: You know, the government's doing quite a good job at the moment of vaccinating its own population and they've done they did a relatively good job in terms of isolating the Rohingya, uh, you know, in uh, in the various camps. So the camps are obviously very densely populated, extremely densely populated. And uh, but they've done a, they did a relatively good job at the peak of the pandemic to create separate cantons within the camps to ensure that those uh, refugees that are suspect of carrying the virus are isolated. So they did they did a, a quite good job there, and they also ensure that uh, the restricted. Access to external parties, NGOs, and uh, others that were coming and going into the camps, they restricted access to them. And uh, and one of the things that they did as well, obviously, is that uh, once the um, um, some of the Rohingya tried to flee from the from uh, Bashan uh, from uh, the Cox Bazar camp by boat, when the boats were turned back from Malaysia, uh, uh, Bangladesh used that opportunity to move remove those Rohingya that were on the boats to the island. So they used that as an excuse to say, well, look, these people now have to be isolated. Uh, we can't have them going back into the camp. They may be carrying the virus, et cetera. So that was when the, the, the whole the, the repatriation, the, the, the movement to the island actually began under the pretext of isolating members of the uh, Rohingya community to protect them from the, vi- from the virus.
0: Myanmar has itself been a sea of turmoil since the military coup in February that you mentioned following the country's elections with the military arresting. And once again, Jelling Aung Suu Kyi. Demonstrations have been bloody with hundreds of protesters killed by the military and police. Azim, do you see the protesters' resolve breaking anytime soon? Is the government's power, the military power, just too strong for them to overcome?
1: Well, the military in Myanmar is extremely strong. You know, this is an institution that uh, has been at war, remember, since independence. You know, uh, the military in Myanmar has been at war with every ethnic minority since uh, independence back in 1948. And these are the longest running civil wars in the world. So they have essentially been a permanent war. And I don't think there's any other case of this in the entire world in which the military has just been at war through its entire existence. Uh, So uh, there are battle hardened soldiers who are, uh, you know, very uh, familiar with committing atrocity crimes against civilian populations. And uh, so I don't anticipate their resolve. You know, the military is going to break anytime soon. And the civilians in, on on the other hand have now come to the realization that uh, the military, the Tatmadaw uh, of Myanmar, is actually the enemy of the people. And uh, the, this realization is now dawning upon all the civilians of the, um, of Myanmar, not just the Bamar Buddhist majority, but obviously the ethnic minorities who are at the sharp end of atrocities of the military knew this before, but now. They are now all beginning to realize that, look, the military is in fact not uh, here to protect Myanmar. They are actually the enemies of the people. You know, so far we've had over 500 people that have been killed. And uh, just a couple of days ago, was Armed Forces Day. And uh, the military chiefs made it very clear publicly that uh, there should be no protest on Armed armed Forces Day. Uh, Otherwise, you will be shot in the head. And they made it absolutely clear, and that's exactly what's been happening. People are being shot in the head at protests, not by accidental gunfire, but by long-range sniper rifles. So these are very deliberate uh, targeting of civilians. And so far, as I said, you know, over 500 have been killed in such a fashion. And uh, <clears throat> and um, so this is obviously a, a very concerning uh, situation. And uh, neither side, neither side, seems to be backing down. Uh, I I personally believe that the military have made a huge miscalculation and this miscalculation has been made specifically by the military chief general Minongling, you know, has one of his primary motivations of undertaking this coup and overthrowing the civilian government was that uh, he himself was due to retire later this year and once he retired from the military he would have been vulnerable uh, for prosecution for international war crimes at the ICJ where there's a case going on for genocide against uh, against Myanmar from the Gambia. And he would have also been liable to have assets frozen. Many of these military chiefs have considerable amounts of wealth that has uh, that they've siphoned off in places like Macau and Singapore and even in Switzerland. So he would have been extremely vulnerable, him and his family. So the only way to avoid that was to overthrow the civilian government and take full control of the country so he doesn't actually have to step down. And I think this was a huge miscalculation on his behalf. And I think one of the best things that the international community can possibly do now is to you know, have targeted sanctions against other military leaders not just Minong Ling, the army chief, but other military leaders, so that they'll begin to realize that like, this is a miscalculation and, uh, and they themselves will remove the army chief and uh, you know, try to protect themselves. I think that's the only realistic possibility now is uh, for targeted sanctions against those individuals.
0: You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh, with Professor Azeem Ibrahim, director of New Line's Institute for Strategy and Policy. The U.S. trade representative announced the suspension of all American engagement with Myanmar and condemning the security force's brutal violence against civilians. How much of an impact will that have on the military junta?
1: All of these are extremely welcome. You know, I think we need to have a complete and utter suspension of all trade with Myanmar, particularly oil and gas and, and, um, and others. Uh, because the, look at, at the at the end of the day, the, the, the civilian government with whom many of these contracts were were signed is no longer in power. Now you have a brutal military dictatorship, is essentially the equivalent of one of your properties. You know, you renting a property being taken over by the mafia, and now they are taking all your rent money from your uh, from your tenants. You know, this is the equivalent situation. This is now a illegitimate military government that's not recognized um, uh, around the globe. The UN, for example, does not recognize them. The old UN ambassador to Myanmar still from the civilian government still has the UN seat. So nobody's recognizing this military government. And uh, they've made that very clear, even within ASEAN uh, in Southeast Asia, uh, they're not recognizing it. So I, I think all of these sanctions uh, you know, from multiple uh, governments from around the globe are, are very important. And I think much more targeted sanctions are required for the military leadership to put pressure on them to get rid of uh, the Army Chief General, Minong Ling, who's the, who's the key architect of this coup.
0: China is Myanmar's neighbour and biggest trading partner. How much cover is Myanmar and the military getting from China in how they're handling their civilian population and the Rohingya?
1: Well, it's very interesting because at the start of this coup, you know, China um, uh, you know, is much more interested in stability. Uh, they're much more interested in having somebody that they, they can have an interlocutor that they can deal with. Uh, they have considerable investments in Myanmar, you know, tens of billions to so the China-Myanmar economic corridor. And uh, at the beginning of the coup, it was interesting how they described it. When all the world was condemning it, China described it as a cabinet reshuffle. At the top, and so the, the, so that was very clear that China did not have much protest against this coup, and they were willing to work with the military. But since but since things have now deteriorated so much, and China's investments are now at uh, at risk, uh, you know they are obviously getting concerned as well, and uh, rightly so. And this is something that has to be also further exploited is to get the Chinese on board. And uh, I think much of this can actually be rectified. I think this really comes down to one person. One person has instigated this, one person is the architect behind this. I think the other military chiefs um, uh, you know, have to be pressured to say, well, look, uh, he has to be removed army chief has to be removed so that we can come to some sort of agreement with the civilian population. there's actually been some positive developments as well from this entire very sad episode. And uh, we have a new uh, more civil society organizations now um, emerging, which are much more inclusive of all, of all the nationalities. I think all the majority population of the Bamar Buddhists and the ethnic minorities are now coming under this one great general umbrella organization called the General Strike Committee. Uh, for nationalities and it's almost it's very loose confederation but they've all come to the realisation that to build a new Myanmar we would have to be fully inclusive of all the ethnic minorities and all the different groups within Myanmar and uh, the military was obviously not very um, uh, favourable to such a proposition in the past, a federal solution Uh, they've always instigated that a federal solution is is just a mechanism by which to break up the country but now the people are realising the military never had the interest of the country at heart. They were only interested in power and in enriching themselves, which is exactly what they did. So there are some positive developments that are coming out this very sad episode that people's eyes are now beginning to open to this new reality. And they are now willing to create a new Myanmar that's inclusive, that's a, a proper functioning democratic uh, country. Azim, has China
0: turned a blind eye to the Rohingya due to its own treatment of its minority Muslim population, the Uyghurs?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. That's absolutely correct. You know, China is obviously very, China who is engaged in a genocide against its own Uyghur minority population is very, um, um, you know, it's very clear that they do not want any precedent to be set anywhere uh, in terms of minorities being persecuted. Uh, the Rohingya case, for example, is something that China, you know, simply did not acknowledge even existed. Uh, simply because you know any sort of prosecution, any sort of acknowledgement that a minority is being persecuted in a in this particular fashion, will then call into account China's own behaviour and its actions towards its own Uyghur minority, and uh, and uh, this is something that obviously is completely untenable. And we have to uh, appreciate that it's not just the Uyghurs or uh, that are being persecuted in uh, in China; they're actually uh, you know through their process of Sinification. Which has been instituted by Xi Jinping in 2014. They are trying; they are targeting all minority groups, you know, to you know, make it to make the Han Chinese the dominant group within China. So this is a, a clear departure from the previous leaders of China. Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin had a very different policy in terms of celebrating in you know, the ethnic makeup of China. Xi Jinping himself, the current leader, uh, is much more of a Han nationalist and less of a communist himself. So he believes that the Han race is superior and he is now engaged in a full-scale genocide. And when I say genocide here, I don't necessarily mean mass killing, but I mean the, the definition of a genocide according to Article 2 of the 1948 Genocide Convention, that the elimination of a group, and they are doing this by forcibly sterilizing uh, Uyghur childbearing-age age women uh, and men, separating the men from the women, removing Uyghur children, from uh, from their families, and also, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, ensuring that Uyghur females are married to Han men, and if any children that they have are, are raised as Han, Han Chinese, and Uyghur. So essentially, so essentially, removing and eliminating Uyghur identity uh, in its entirety. It's just
0: a very difficult time for minorities. All around the world, but in particular parts of Asia, between the Uyghurs and the Rohingya. One final question for you, Azim: Do you anticipate a different approach to Myanmar and the Rohingya from the Biden administration from the Trump White House?
1: Well, in terms of uh, the the Uyghur the uh, Either of those, you know, despite what you may think of Trump, yeah, and, and I know many people are not fans of his and how he operated on his China policies in particular. You know, he he may not have uh, presented them in the best of fashions, but he was correct on many factors. You know, he was he was right, and I think the Biden administration is actually continuing with those policies as far as I can see. Uh, uh, you know, in terms of uh, uh, you know treating China as a hostile power, that's a detriment. Uh, to inter- the international rules based system, um, uh, so I-, I certainly hope that uh, the- they will continue with uh, you know these uh, policies uh, to hold China to account for the chaos that's um, perpetuating in that part of the world, certainly, and uh, and and bring people to account and try to force China to change its behaviour through various sanctions. You know, Magnitsky sanctions targeting senior leaders of the Politburo, uh, target sanctions against uh, the use of forced labour that China is engaging in in Xinjiang using the Uyghur population as literally slave labor to produce Western products, you know, cotton products, one in five cotton products is now being produced globally by by slave labor. And this is completely unacceptable and untenable. So I certainly do hope that Biden will enforce many of these uh, uh, you know, laws that the United States has been exploring for some time to put an end to these practices.
0: Azim, I hope the next time we chat that the Rohingya, the civilians of Myanmar, the Uyghurs, everybody else will be in much better position than they are today. Uh, Azim, thank you very much for joining us again here on The Crisis Next Door.
1: Thanks so much for having me again, Jason.
0: We've been joined by Professor Azim Ibrahim, director of New Line's Institute for Strategy and Policy based in Washington, D.C. Professor Ibrahim is also author of the book The Rohingyas Inside Myanmar's Genocide. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host
1: Jason Brooks is produced weekly.
0: If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at TCNDpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's TCNDpodcast at kcbsradio.com.